if you're new to Christ's community, probably the comments that we get most often is, um, what about that space right after the scripture reading? And it feels like, I think somebody missed a cue. You know, like somebody's supposed to get up and say something, and then you sit quietly, and they say in a crowd, silence can only be endured for 15 seconds before somebody feels the need to say or do something that makes a noise. And we do that not because I need an extra 60 seconds to work on my sermon. Um, We really want to give some space between what God has to say and then my comments on it. We don't want to get those two things confused. I'm doing my best to try to understand the text, but we really want to separate, hey, this is God's word. This is what we're living our lives by. When you go home, you can go back to these 11 verses in chapter 5, and hopefully I've helped bring some light on it, but this is what's going to be sustained. This is what's going to be remembered This is what God has to say for us. And so we create that space to think about it and to honor God's word. Now, if you're a nurse or you're a biology major, maybe, or you took anatomy or a doctor, or you just have a better memory than I do about your high school biology class or college biology class, you you might remember something called the autonomic nervous system. It's a it's a system, a nervous system in your body that that doesn't uh, that doesn't require voluntary control. So if you want to move your arms and legs, you have to think about moving your arms and your legs. But the the autonomic nervous system operates unconsciously and it regulates things like your heartbeat. So you don't have to think, gotta gotta think about my heart beating. It just is going to beat. It regulates your respiration. It regulates your digestive system. So you don't have to think about those things. They happen automatically. And I want to suggest that there's another system that's like that. But it's a system that works on the emotional level, not the physical level. It's, it's like the autonomic nervous system, but, but it operates, and it seems to operate automatically, And that's our response to evil and enemies. Whenever we encounter evil and enemies, it feels like, it's not true that it's automatic, but it just feels like something automatic happens. It's it's involuntary how we respond to evil with retaliation. And we all know this. You punch me, what am I going to do? I'm going to just punch you back. Every high school, middle school boy knows this. You grow up in a family, he punches me, i got to punch back, and probably I've got to punch back just a little bit harder. If you call me a name, just automatically it feels like I've got to call you a name back. If you hurt me, I hurt you back. That's It just seems like an automatic response. And you hardly have to think about it. it. It's part of a false narrative that we have in our minds that says the only way to protect yourself is is by retaliation. By using some kind of force. And, and in these ten verses, Jesus completely rewires that kind of thinking. So, so we've come out of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom of light. And, and, and Jesus is saying, now I've got to pull out some wires and I've got to rewire your thinking on this. And, and I would suggest that, that these ten verses may be the most difficult 
and, and, and some of the most countercultural teaching that Jesus gives us if we're interested in living in the kingdom of heaven. First, don't retaliate when wronged. And both of these go together. Second, you're supposed to love your enemies, not hate them. These are, these are huge challenges. And, and what it's going to take is a, is a maturity. If you look with me down in verse 48, the very last verse, maybe the most disturbing verse, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This, this perfect, this word perfect means mature or complete. It means that you're a finished product. So when you get to the end of chapter 5, Jesus is saying, these are the things that you need to have in your character to be mature, to be a, a finished product. He's trying to help us understand how to be this, not perfect in perfection, and but perfect in terms of complete. And in order to be a finished product, we have to understand how to deal with evil, how to deal with our enemies. So we want to take pay close attention. So first, and I'll spend more time here, don't retaliate when wrong. Do you see this in verse 38? When you, you have heard that it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. And then we'll look at these in turn. Basically, Jesus gives four little illustrations, four little PowerPoints to make sure if you just didn't get the words, he'll show you a picture. He'll, give, he'll draw you a diagram. And, and actually, Jesus is quoting part of the Old Testament law. If you look back in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, all places where this law, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law, was lifted out. And that's true. And, and if you think about it, you can immediately discern the wisdom and purpose of a law like this. It, it's not meant to be literal it's meant to be a way of expressing how to have fair retaliation if somebody wrongs you. So the law requires that the, the wrongdoer pay back an equal amount to his wrongdoing. If you do $1,000 of damage to my car, then you've got to give me $1,000 or you've got to fix it in equal proportion to the damage that you've done. And it also limits the victim. In other words, it's an eye for an eye, not an eye for a tooth. An eye is a lot more valuable than a tooth. And so if you do a $1,000 worth of damage, this law limits me from getting $10,000 back from you. And you might say, well, who would do such a thing? But if you just think about it, you realize how easy that is to do. If you hit me, I don't just have to hit you back. I've I've got to hit you back just a little bit harder. And what happens is this, this spiral happens of violence. And, and every family knows this, especially if you grew up in a family of, of at least two boys. So, so here's how it might look. Uh, uh, Mom, he took my toy, so I kicked him in the shin. Well, you know, then when he kicked me in the shin, I, I punched him in the gut. And then when he punched me in the gut, I got up on the second tier of the, of the bunk bed and I elbow dropped him when he came in the door. And then, Mom, well, he elbow dropped me, so I went to the garage and I made this small explosive device. I mean, you see, it just, it just keeps going. Every family understands this dynamic. 
And it's kind of a funny thing you see happen in a family, but you, you do realize this can ruin a whole family. He said something, she said something, and I've just got to say something a little bit sharper back. Can ruin a whole nation. Can cause nations to go to war. Because somebody did something to us and we've got to do something plus a little bit more back. And so the law has a very good way of of ending the spiral of violence. Now, Jesus, in verse 39, he wants to institute a new principle for individual followers, people who are in the kingdom. And he wants to replace this automatic response of retaliation with kindness. Instead of your automatic thing against evil to be retaliate and maybe retaliate a little bit harder, he's trying to say, I want to re- re- want to replace that whole system with kindness. Instead of striking back, you love back. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. What does it say? With good. You're going to be facing evil all the time in this world. And how do you deal with it? Well, instead of being overcome by it and instead of striking back, you, you, you give good back. You, you love back. And then to drive his point home, Jesus gives these four many illustrations. And the first three are really very similar. Verse 39, we, we know these phrases, turn the other cheek. Now, turn the other cheek wasn't just meant a, a literal if somebody slaps you on the right cheek. And what it was meant is if somebody insults you. Because if you get hit on the right cheek by somebody... It probably means they hit you with the back of their hand in order to hit your right cheek. And to be hit by the back of the hand is not just a a, a harming blow, it's an insulting blow. I'm not really just fighting against you, I'm just dismissing you. And in an honor culture, like the Jewish culture, if you get dismissed, if you get hit by the back of the hand, you got to hit back. And so Jesus is saying, when you get insulted, what's the automatic response? Guys, what's the automatic response when somebody insults you? Hey, I'm going to insult back. And if you've got a quick wit, you can start a fire pretty quickly. And so Jesus is saying, instead of, instead of insulting back, instead of striking back, turn the other cheek, take another insult. Don't be limited to just receiving one. How about receiving two? Second picture. If someone's suing for your tunic, that's probably like your regular clothing. And these were valuable pieces of garments, especially if you were poor. And somebody is apparently suing for your regular clothing. They're suing for part of your possessions. Jesus says, just add your coat as well. Instead of them just taking part, just, just go ahead and add your coat to that lawsuit. Verse 41, go the extra mile. In, in the Jewish culture, the, Rome, the Roman Empire had, were the occupying force. And so the rule was, if you're a Roman soldier, you can get any Jewish person to take your luggage or take your weapons one mile. And they can't do anything about it. Hey, I'm tired of carrying this stuff. I got too much stuff. You, you got to carry it one mile. 
Now, this was terribly insulting. You can imagine, you live in a country, it's occupied by people that you hate. And now, you're doing something, they say, hey, you, Paul, you need to go, you need to carry my weapons that I'm holding against you. you got to carry them for one mile. And Jesus says, at the end of that one mile where you've been forced to go, volunteer to go a second mile. You see, you see what happens in all three of these instances? It's, it's a, like a doubling effect. I, I want you to double up goodness for evil. If somebody is hitting one cheek, offer a second one. If somebody is going to ask you to go one mile, go two. If somebody's taking part of your possession, add uh, more possessions. This, this kind of new ethic is going to require a dying to yourself. See, a proud person is going to have a hard time living inside the kingdom of heaven. Somebody who's always fighting for themselves, always fighting for their rights, it's going to be very difficult to live inside the kingdom of heaven. George Mueller, some of you know his name. He lived in the 1800s, and he was probably most well-known as somebody who took care of orphans. And over his lifetime, he took care of more than 10,000 orphans in England. Well, if you want to take care of 10,000 orphans, you've got to die to yourself. <laughs> And this is what he writes. There was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. I died to his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame of even my friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. If you plan on living this kind of kingdom life, you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to preferences and taste and your will. You have to die to certain reactions that you would have. You're going to have to die to retaliation. You're going to have to die to your enemies, and you're going to have to die to your friends. Dying to yourself allows you to pile up goodness on top of evil. If you're living for yourself, you cannot give any more than what's being exacted from you. It it reminds me of the scene, probably most of you have seen it in the the play, the Victor Hugo play, uh, Les Mis. You remember, it's right at the very beginning, one of those famous scenes uh, Jean Valjean, remember him? The, the thief got, got put in prison for stealing bread, if I remember right. And so he gets let out. He has no resources, and he ends up at this, uh, this church, this cathedral, and the bishop takes him in. Remember, they have a meal together, and the, it's the bishop and a couple of ladies that work there, and they're like horrified that Jean Valjean's even at the table. And he gives them, the bishop gives them a nice place to sleep, and during the night, what, what does Jean Valjean do? He takes all this silver and he packs it in his bag and he tries to escape overnight and he's caught by the police. He's brought back the next morning and you walk, they, they sort of throw him into the room with the bishop and these, these two ladies and they, the police are saying, we, we found, we found him. We, we know he stole your stuff, bishop. We brought him back. And you remember, you remember if you saw the play, what happened? Such a great moment. 
The bishop hustles over to the table, grabs a couple of very valuable silver candlesticks and says, Hey, Jean Valjean, you forgot these. And, and, and it's so great, especially in the most recent movie, how they looked at the faces of the police and the faces of these two old women in the back going, oh, my goodness. N- nobody does this. Nobody acts this way. This guy really is a thief. It's very obvious he tried to stole from, steal from the bishop. And the bishop, instead of returning retaliation, he adds goodness on top of this guy's evil. And if I could sing, and, and I can't, but remember this, my brother, see in this, see in this act of adding goodness to your evil, some higher plan. By the witness of the martyrs, see, by, by watching people suffer because of your evil, by the passion and the blood, Your individual bishop suffering is pointing to a much greater suffering. God has raised you out of darkness, and I have saved your soul for God. You see, if you're not living for yourself, and you're living for God, when somebody evil or an enemy comes toward you, you can pile on goodness. And you can say, I'm saving your soul for God Almighty. I'm hoping my little act of kindness, me me just holding my tongue instead of retaliating in an insult, my doubling up goodness on top of your evil is going to show the greatest goodness on top of evil. Now, I got to the end of this passage, and, and you've already gotten there. You read these verses, you're smart enough to understand the illustrations, but you say, I mean, can this be right? I mean, how is this ethic really possible? I mean, it seems like a great idea, but Paul, everybody's not operating according to this ethic. And so how how do I really implement this in my life? And this is where I would say verse 48 comes into play. It really takes maturity. And part of the maturity is navigating all of Scripture, not allowing just one passage of Scripture to dominate everything else, but allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Because if all we had from the Bible is is chapter 5, then we'd be in trouble. Because you'd be asking these kinds of questions, is there no place for resistance against evil? I mean, what if I'm the victim of abuse? Am I supposed to just turn the other cheek? What, what, am I supposed to stop and give every beggar money, even though I know they're taking that money and using it towards their own self-destruction? Is that what I'm supposed to do? You see, you have, and you can multiply these questions on top of, them, of each other. And these kinds of questions... I think cause cause me to think of some some things that are clarifying that 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 help this complication sort of to unravel this knot. So let me make three comments here. First, it's very important to understand the responsibilities of an individual trying to live inside the kingdom of heaven are different than the responsibility of the government. 
The responsibility of individuals can be very different than the responsibility of a government. So I was listening to one political person stand up and say, well, what part of the Bible are we supposed to live by as a nation? Are we supposed to live by Matthew chapter 5? Answer, no. Read on, I want to say to that political person. Read to Romans 13, where Paul says this, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. He who rebels against the authority is rebelling against God. If you do wrong, be afraid, for the authorities do not bear the sword for nothing. They are God's servants. They are God's agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. So there is a role for justice and punishment that belongs to the governing authorities that may not apply to you. So we don't need to take matters into our own hands. The hands that God has instituted while we're on this earth are the governing hands to institute justice. Now, there can be several good examples, but perhaps the freshest one and maybe the most powerful one is the shooter in Charleston. Remember the boy, Dylan Roof? I mean, of all places, he walks into a prayer meeting. And he stays in the prayer meeting for some length of time before he pulls out a gun and he kills nine of the people in the prayer meeting. Well, he's caught. And then uh, uh, several months later, he has a hearing, which was stunning. He's standing. As you, you watch it, he's in a cell but it's on a video screen, and the, the victims, the, the children or the relatives of the victims come in. And here's one report. One after another, they spoke, they spoke words of forgiveness, even as their voices shook with grief and anger. Now, I'm just trying to put myself into this position. Perhaps the most incredible declaration of forgiveness came from Nadine Collier, Daughter of slain member Ethel Lance, she said to Dylan Roof, you took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again, but I forgive you, and I have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but if God can forgive, then I can forgive you. You see, it's right for the governing authorities to appropriate justice to Dylan Roof. He's not supposed to say, well, they forgive, so he walks out. No, that's their role. When you're an individual inside the kingdom, somebody hurts you. Instead of striking back, you love back. Now, most of us aren't going to have to, thankfully, be in this kind of situation. But just think now, a, a situation where you run into this person and they're always kind of striking out with their tongue. How, how easy is it for you to strike back instead of love back? Second thing that I think offers some clarification, it's also important to hear Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in the context of the rest of the Bible. This is something you'd want to do all the time. Uh, the, the applications, this is going to bother a few people, all right? So I'm just telling you right now, 
If you just want to say on the way out with a smile, hey, that bothered me, that's okay. But the reason is because some people just like black and white. They're black and white world kind of people. Is it this or is it this? I don't like loopholes. I don't like things in the middle. I don't like gray area. I understand that. But I think this is where it requires wisdom. This is where being uh, uh, fully formed, being complete is helpful. Uh, We know from Matthew 21, Jesus sees something evil. He sees an injustice. He sees the money changers in the temple, and he doesn't turn the other cheek, does he? He actually turns over tables, and he runs all these guys out. So he's like, oh, gosh, I was supposed to do Matthew 5, and now here I'm in Matthew 21. I've messed up. No. We know from Paul in Galatians 2, he resisted Peter to his face. Same word that's used here in verse 38 or 39. So Jesus saying, resist, don't, don't resist evil. And then here is Paul taking on Peter. Peter who, who had insulted the Gentiles by saying, I don't want to eat with you guys anymore. And Paul resists him face to face. Almost every commentator, as you study these passages in the Sermon on the Mount, would agree that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't forbid every form of self-defense. It doesn't forbid saying, well, if you suffer unjustly, all you do can do as citizens of the kingdom is invite more injustice. No, here's how John Stott says it. Christ's illustrations are not to be taken as the charter for any tyrant, beggar, or thug. Instead, what Jesus teaches is not the irresponsibility which encourages evil, but the forbearance which renounces revenge. People who live in Jesus' kingdom are prompted by mercy, not retaliation. So you want your heart to change so you're prompted by mercy, not retaliation. But as you exercise wisdom in individual situations, you'll have to figure out for yourself what, when's the best time to apply certain biblical principles. Now, again, this is very difficult, but we're not surprised to see it. If you remember in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him. You understand that? A fool's chattering on and on. You join in. Guess what you look like? A fool. So don't just, you know, when the fool starts speaking up, just shut. You shut up. They look more foolish. That's verse four. Verse five, answer a fool according to his folly. Or he'll be wise in his own eyes. What? Come on. Which is it? Am I supposed to be answering a fool or not answering a fool? It takes maturity to know which one it is. When somebody's striking you on the face in order to get to your family, you probably want to fight back at that point. Somebody's striking you on the face to insult you, wisdom would say, turn the other cheek. See, this is, don't you, won't you prefer, honestly, black and white, just, okay, every situation, and it doesn't work that way. You've got to be mature. You've got to understand the whole Bible here. But let me end with this third piece on just clarifications. There will be occasions where you can't dodge the demand. It has to be obeyed literally. And Scott says, this is the standard which Jesus asks 
and is the standard which he himself fulfilled. 1 Peter 2.19 If you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Listen to that. If you suffer because you're doing good, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And everyone in the kingdom of heaven has been called to that situation. Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that we might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to God who judges justly. And by his wounds, remember what it says? We get healed. You take wounds, that's the way God heals other people. Wendy Alsop, maybe a few of you know her, she writes a blog called Practical Theology for Women. She says this, Dear friend who is struggling with a weight on your shoulders, one that may seem lighter to bear if you walk away from God's instructions. Don't buy the lie. God's instructions are not limitations. They are not things that keep you from being all that you're meant to be. That was the first lie ever told. And it remains Satan's greatest summary temptation. It's not true. Instead, embrace the path of suffering and obedience to God's instruction. Lose your life. Let go of yourself and your expectations. Trust God to meet you in it. Redeem to redeem your story and give you a place in his larger story. See, some of you are under this temptation that I, but Paul, and you've got a reason to say, but this guy, this family member, I mean, you're at Thanksgiving. I, I was tempted to say, you know, let's just do a little experiment. Just punch the person next to you and see how that goes. You know, do they retaliate? And I thought, Sunday after Thanksgiving, tempers are short here, you know. I've been here all week with these people. We'd have a big, you know, battle royal. But you see, it's Satan's temptation to say, if you would walk away, the, the burden would be actually lighter. That's not true. That is not true. That is a lie. You, you've got to lose yourself in order to find yourself. That sounds a lot like Jesus. The, the second segment is really the same as the first. It's just a particularly drilled down on loving your enemies. Jesus understands that hatred is like a fire, kind of like anger. It has a consuming effect. When you, when you are burning with hatred, it, it just takes up all of the space in your mind. You don't have any other part of your windshield to operate out of. You're constantly fixated on hatred. How many Princess Bride fans do we have? Well, if you're a big Princess Bride fan, you, you've memorized probably most of the movie. But you certainly memorized uh, Indigo Mantoya's line. Remember that? Indigo Mantoya was the this, this Spanish swordsman. And, and he had been uh, marked on his cheeks by this other swordsman. And, and his father was killed when he was nine. And maybe at this point in the movie, Mantigo is, I don't know, 25 or 30 years old. 
And, and he spent his whole life looking for, remember the six-fingered man who, who killed his father. And he has this one line. He says it like a hundred times in the movie. My name is Indigo Mantoya. You have killed my father. Then what does he say? Prepare to die. I mean, it's such an awesome. It makes a great movie. But do you see what happens in the movie? He's completely consumed by hating and killing one man. His whole life is wrapped around hatred. Now, it's funny in the movie. It works in the movie. It doesn't work in life that way. But, but you know people, and maybe there have been seasons in your life, your whole life was wrapped around hatred of a person, of a president, of a group, of a family member, of an enemy. And you got in the shower, you were thinking about it. You're driving along the road. You're th- it's just completely consuming. And Jesus doesn't want us to be consumed by that. And so he says, channel that hatred, this is amazing, channel that into prayer. See, this is the the most counterintuitive. When I'm focused on hatred, I'm not interested in praying for the person. And Jesus says, I'm trying to rewire, Paul. When When you come across that person, when you come across that event, when you come across that emotion... Move it down a different channel. Let's move it down the channel of praying for that person. Of course, he sets the best example, Luke 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. And they came to the place of the skull where they crucified Jesus along with the criminals. One on his right and one on his left. And most commentators think this was when they were driving the stakes into Jesus' hands. He says, Father, forgive them. They, They don't really know what they're doing. Wow. He's praying right at this moment for his enemies. But you see, he has compassion on them. He understands something they don't. He's inside the kingdom and they're outside the kingdom. And he's saying, it's possible that by me stretching out my hands and absorbing, it's possible that they could come into the kingdom. And of course, many did. Now, now Jesus gives several reasons. I just want to close, put an end to this. Uh, passage by he gives several reasons of why you should love your enemy just look at verse 45 so that you may be sons of your father you just want to be a chip off the old block the you you want the apple not to fall far far from the tree See, see when people see you they see jesus The way you act, especially the way you react, especially the way you react to your enemies, demonstrates God's love. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. And what is this? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
That's the new ethic for those living inside the kingdom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it this, the visible participation in the cross. So, so how are you doing here? We're just one chapter in of the three chapters. Some of you are going, oh my gosh. But, but you've heard it said, and Jesus is rewiring. You've heard it said this about anger, and you've got to have a different way to deal with anger. You've heard it said this about lust, and you have to have a, a different rewiring about lust, or marriage, or honesty, or revenge, or loving your enemies. My question is, how are you doing? Which one of these places needs great attention? And finally, who's helping you? Because all of these things, if it's your thing, it's a big thing. And there's no way you can fix this or you can really address this all by yourself. It has to be transformation is a community project. So what person, what couple of people, what small group is helping you so that when you go home today, when you see somebody this week, oh, gosh, the Lord just laid this conviction on my heart. I'm always somebody who's sharp with my tongue. People insult me. I just insult back. I'm, I'm that retaliation person. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? Let's pray together.